Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 26. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think I just knocked over the communion cup. It's a good start to the year. Good morning. (laughs) Be true to yourself. Something that probably someone has said to you. Uh, Maybe you have said it to someone else. It's kind of a cultural mantra. There's a clothing brand called Be Yourself. If you go to their website, there's some poetry there. And part of the poetry uh, says this. uh, No matter uh, what they do or say, don't you dare doubt your worth or the beauty of your truth. Just keep on shining like you do and be yourself. If we put together a a list of the 10 commandments for modern life, modern secular life, maybe number one would be be true to yourself. It's so ubiquitous, it's so woven into the fabric of how we do life and how we think about life that it sounds like something Jesus would say, but Jesus never said it. And in fact, Jesus said the very opposite of that. And so we'll get into that. I'm probably already ruffling some feathers. Uh, we're, we're in a new series uh, called uh, I Did Not, or I Never Said That. And so we got, here's a logo coming up. And that's also, that's also what, uh, what Jesus uh, never looked like. Also, right? This is, this is, this is the beauty of that logo. Uh, we, we're like a culture that's obsessed uh, with, the, with this idea of self. The number one picture that most of you take on your phone is called a what? Selfie. <laughs> yeah, right? It's embarrassing. Selfie. The self-help industry has absolutely exploded. In the last couple of years, the book titles that are part of the self-help industry have tripled. The market share, wait for this, of the self-help industry globally is $41 billion. And it's going to double in the next 10 years. I, uh, I get a little email weekly from the Atlantic magazine, uh, just like an article to read today. And I, I, I don't read most of them, but I just, some of them catch my eye. And this week, I was actually going to write this sermon the very day. And the article from the day was, what to read if you want to reinvent yourself, whether you're starting over or discovering a new identity, these works uh, can help. 
This is new. This is a new idea. A lot of you are like, well, yeah, that sounds interesting. Most of the world, throughout history, most of the world presently today would think that the title of that article is absolutely absurd. And we'll get more into this in the message. But about the last hundred years, there's been a seismic shift across particularly the Western modern world. Not most of the world, but the Western modern world towards a worldview, away from a worldview that was God-centered, whatever you would deem God to be. But God is out there and they're God-centered towards self-centered. And it's, it's kind of, in the philosophical world, it's called, it's referred to as, as humanism. And there, there's, a, there's growing data that this shift in the modern Western world towards being self-obsessed and self-focused, which sounds good in some ways, that's the danger, is devastatingly bad and creating a world of narcissists. They've done studies where uh, each uh, subsequent generation is more and more embodying narcissistic traits. And boomers, before you judge us, someone raised us, right? (laughs) Uncomfortable laughter. Narcissism Epidemic is a book, and the author said, in trying to build a society that celebrates high self-esteem, self-expression, and loving yourself, Americans have inadvertently created more narcissists. Be true to yourself. I read a recent article that said, uh, it, it was, it was an anecdotal experience of this person, a psychologist, somebody who had, who had been with people as they're dying, and he said the number one uh, regret that people voiced to him in the modern world is that they weren't true to themselves. I guarantee you that is not something that a faithful follower of Jesus on their deathbed will feel. And here's the deal. So some, I may, I may be, you may be feeling uncomfortable already, and, and you will be throughout this message. I'm just, just fair warning. I'm going to ruffle some feathers today. Here's the deal. In these statements, and in, in this series we're going to look at, and we're looking at statements that are kind of cultural mantras that are out there, that they're so deeply ingrained in our culture, we think Jesus said them, but he never said them. So that's kind of the, the deal with the series. And today is obviously be true to yourself. There's grains of truth in all of them. There's good stuff in all of them. So, so I'm, we're not doing a zero-sum game thing here. But they're, they're dangerous because woven into them are some really, really dangerous ideas. Uh, self-help books. I have many on my shelf. There's really good stuff in them. We can disagree with some people and still glean good things. We can do that. We don't have to throw it all away. There's an occasional Dr. Phil episode that might be good. Or not, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to like be the guy that's up there just like, hey, do you go to all that? There's good stuff there. But as followers of Jesus, we have to be serious on saying, what did Jesus really say? And Jesus never said that. Jesus said the exact opposite. So let me, let me pray over us, because I, as I said, maybe I won't ruffle your feathers at all, but I think I will. I think I'm going to try to. And, uh, and we need the Holy Spirit, as we've, we've been singing already. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just pray that you'd be present with us. Um, my words are, are just inadequate because I'm sinful and I'm broken and I, I see through a glass dimly. I'm going to try my best today, but we need you and we need the power of your word as we enter this new year to reshape us as your followers and your disciples. I pray that that would happen. I pray that you would make us uncomfortable today in the most appropriate ways uh, for your glory and for the sake of the world, we pray. This in Jesus' name, all God's people said. 
All right, so we're in Matthew 16, 21 through 26. If you want to turn to that, it's great to have that in front of you. I'll be walking through it. Ron read that. Uh, We looked at Matthew on Christmas Eve here, written about 8060 to a largely Jewish audience, one of four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Uh, Right prior to this, I like us to always have good context for the passage we're in. Right prior to this, and this is in the point of the gospel that Jesus is starting to head towards crucifixion in, in Jerusalem. He asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then, you know, they have this discourse, and then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's kind of the de facto leader of the disciples, says that you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Theologically, he would have gotten an A+. Plus. <laughs> Correct. As the, as the story goes, we see that he doesn't really understand what he's saying. So it, right prior to this passage, right in the beginning of it, Matthew tells his readers from then on, Jesus tells his disciples he must go to Jerusalem to die and will be raised again. He says this four times in the gospel. He keeps telling them. He's warning them. And yet when you read the story, they're shocked. They're just like, we didn't see this coming. They missed it. They didn't understand it because I don't think they wanted to hear it. That's what's in this passage. That's what I see in Peter, at least. Peter, he's the leader. He kind of speaks for the rest of the disciples. So Jesus, Matthew tells him this, Jesus tells him this, so the passage is unrolling, and then Peter's uncomfortable. And so it says that uh, Peter takes Jesus aside. Imagine the audacity of this. He's probably a 20-year-old guy, 19 or 20. He takes his rabbi, the one he just confessed was the Messiah, the Son of God, and he takes him aside to correct him. He doesn't want to do it in front of everybody else. It's kind of almost a humorous scene. In the Greek language, he uses the strongest possible negative. And in the English translations, they translate that with two nevers. Never, never, Lord, never will you go and die in Jerusalem. That can't be the thing. I mean, do you see the audacity? Because Peter, as he's thought about the kingdom and the disciples, they've thought about it through the lens of the human psyche and through self which revolves around wealth and power and fame. Crucifixion doesn't fit well into that paradigm. <laughs> so there's uncomfortable. So he, he, he says, Jesus, this can't be the deal. And then it, it's interesting because it's the same thing Jesus was tempted by the devil in at the beginning of his ministry, at the beginning of Matthew, wealth, power, fame. And Jesus says, no, and he rebukes the devil. And then look at the language he uses. He tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. He does the same thing to Peter. He says, the, the word in the Greek language is kind of, he's like, you're setting a trap for me, like the, Satan was. That sounds really good. It doesn't work. It's a trap, and it's counter to the kingdom that I'm building. Peter, you're being selfish and self-centered. You're not thinking about others and about God. That's the, the flow of this. And then Jesus has their full attention, and they're like, whoa. They've just called, he's just called out Peter, and then he tells them what it looks like to be a disciple. And if you're a disciple this morning, if you follow Jesus, if you look to Jesus for life, lean in right now. You should be leaning in and saying, okay, what is a disciple? I want to know. Because we can fall for the same trap that we take how we're wired and how the world works and we put it on Jesus. And so he, he kind of gives them three things. I like the word uh, apprentice instead of disciple. I think disciple is just kind of weird for some people. It's lost its power. Uh, the heart of the idea is apprentice. You go to someone who's an expert at something and says, teach me how to do this. And in the case of Jesus, teach me how to be human. Teach me how to glorify God. Teach me how to be right with God. 
And so in the context of the first century, you would have young men who were interested in being rabbis. They would go and either be called by the rabbi or start to follow the rabbi, like we see with Jesus. And they would literally live with the rabbi and do life with the rabbi and walk around and take notes and try to do what the rabbi does and copy what the rabbi does. So this is like normal in, in the course of first century Judaism. So that's what these, these guys, they think they're doing. They think they're disciples. But Jesus is a different kind of rabbi. And it's a different kind of discipleship. So he gives them three things here that define discipleship. If you want to go anywhere in the scripture and find what disciples, I think this is a great passage. So if that's you and that's me, we need to lean in and listen. Do we have ears to hear? So he says that disciples of Jesus deny themselves. This word deny in the Greek means to disown or utterly separate yourself from someone. It's the same exact word, ironically, that is used of what Peter did to Jesus three times right after this. Denied him, disowned him. I don't know that man. I don't know. That's what Jesus says we need to do to ourselves. So the modern cultural thing, be true to yourself. Jesus says the exact opposite. He said, deny yourself. Self, get away from me. We're done. Get away. I don't want to be in relationship with you anymore. Disciples of Jesus take up their cross. This must have been just a shocking statement for them to hear. Not to us, because I'm wearing one. You may be wearing one. But for them, the, the cross in the first century was the symbol of degradation and shame. The Romans devised it. Possibly it could be the worst way ever to die. And they wanted to humiliate and degradate the victims. You, if you're a Roman citizen, you weren't even allowed to be crucified. And they reserved it for the worst of the worst criminals. And they would flog you and then take off all your clothes and make you carry your, uh, it's called the patibulum. And it was the cross beam. And you were, you were to carry it. And then you get to the top of a hill and they would uh, attach you to the patibulum, nail you to it, and then nail you and the patibulum to a, a, a post that was in the ground. And to breathe, you had to push up on it which you're nailed to a cross and so it was excruciating. So you basically died of asphyxiation because you couldn't push up any longer. It was horrible. And they put it on highways and byways so everyone could see it was a warning. Don't you dare cross Rome. So when, when you would think about it, if you asked a first century person, what do you think of the cross? They'd be like, oh. And then do you see what Jesus is saying? If you want to be my disciple, you got to take up your, your cross. Now, some followers of Jesus through the centuries have taken this literally. There's a guy I found, Leslie Hammond. I think we have a picture. He has a 55-pound cross. He's traveled all over the world. Look at that guy. Uh, 5,000 miles uh, over 26 years, and uh, that's his deal. He thinks you know, like he's taking Jesus literally. I'm just going to carry my cross everywhere I go. Another guy I found, Mike Fisher. I don't know if we got a good uh, picture of this guy. It's kind of blurry, but that's how Americans carry their cross. Like right there, <laughs> right? We put wheels on it and there's places for luggage and, and stuff like that. Um, you could go and book a trip. I think it was $70 uh, for the Via Dolorosa. If you want to walk that, my wife and I were over there last year and the, you get a guided tour of the, you know, maybe where Jesus had walked uh, and carried his patibulum. Uh, I think it's, it's extra if you want to cross, they'll supply a cross and you can walk it. And then there's some people in the Philippines every year it's kind of gruesome, but followers of Jesus, some of them will actually be crucified. And they don't, they, they don't carry it all the way to death. They have them take them off right at the end. So that is not what Jesus is talking about. For, the, for you literalists, that's not what... He's, he's saying when, to carry your cross, and Luke says daily, it's denying yourself. 
and dying to yourself. That's what disciples of Jesus are called. Now you see where the way of Jesus doesn't line up with this cultural mantra, be true to yourself. Jesus says, you gotta take up your cross and die to yourself. And finally, if you're a disciple, um, you, Jesus said, you gotta follow me. You gotta follow me. People will ask me uh, sometimes when I meet them and, and they hear that I'm, you know, they ask me what I do for a living and I'm like, well, are you, you're a Christian? And I'm like, oh, well, what do you mean by Christian? I'm starting to say that because the word's gotten so watered down and so politicized and so attached to political parties and this. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? Before I answer that, what do you mean? And I've started, and you may like this or not like this, to, to describe myself as a follower of Jesus. As a follower, because Jesus does. And that's why our mission statement here is to follow Jesus and share his love. So Jesus is, is radically redefining discipleship. Um, why, would, why would someone wanna deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus to find life? That's what Jesus says. He's really, he's entering into a debate of first century philosophers that go all the way back to Aristotle and Plato. What is the good life? Jesus is like, the good life is to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I am the source of life. And he, and he says this, he says, you must lose your life. That Greek word is psyche, psychiatrist, psychologist, that's the word. You must lose your psyche to find your psyche, is what Jesus is saying. It's all this reversal, upside down, and then he asks this rhetorical question. What good is it to gain the whole world? What good is it to get wealth and power and fame if you miss out on true life? That's what our rabbi is saying. If it, it, what good is it? You're losing everything. Jim Elliott was a, a young man that impacted me deeply when I was a child. Heard his story, read his book. In 1952, he was martyred uh, by taking the gospel. He was a wrestler and a, a young businessman, had everything in front of him, and he left that to go take the gospel to a tribe I'd never heard, and he got killed. He got martyred. He was on the cover of Time or Life magazine. And I was deeply impacted as a young follower of Jesus. They found his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, who's, who's kind of a famous author in her own right. She found later in his journal this quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's life. That's true life. Or is it? Right? This is where you're, you're wrestling right now with it, aren't you? You're like, martyrdom? I don't know. Crosses? I kind of like the be true to yourself thing. This is real-time wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus. So, so what? What does this mean? We say that every, every week here. So what? I, you know, what does what this, that, that was something for Peter and Jesus, and that was a long time ago with crosses, and here we are in this remodeled building, and what does this mean? What does this mean to you? What does it mean to me? Well, I'll share a few things that this, as I ponder this passage that is sunk deep into my heart, and maybe it will resonate with you, and maybe it won't. Uh, I think that most religions, most philosophies, I think the self-help industry <clears throat> truly, truly is looking for the good life. I think it's well-intended. I'm not trying to besmirch anybody up here or cast aspersions on anybody. I think it's well-intended. I think there's something deep in our Imago Dei because we're made in the image of God. We want life and we know we're lacking it and we're looking for it everywhere. We're looking for what the Apostle Paul defined as the, the life that is truly life. But here is the more I've thought about philosophy and sociology and theology, I would bring down, here's a pivotal question I think everybody, in the, especially in the modern Western world, has to face. Do we turn inward or outward to find the good life? 
Do we turn inward or outward? I think this is one of the most crucially defining questions we have to answer and decide the modern Western mindset says unequivocally you turn inward. That the truth is, is, is locked in, in here, that the good life is found by turning inward and exploring and researching yourself. Uh, this, this mindset is seen everywhere by really good writers and really well-intentioned writers. One of them would be Brene Brown. You may know Brene Brown. Um, I really like Brene Brown. I've quoted her in a positive way in my sermons. I'm reading one of her books right now. So hear this. We can disagree with people and still glean truth from them. But here's a quote from Brene Brown. True belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. Jesus would most heartily disagree with Brene Brown. She's saying that you find the truth by turning inward. Jesus is like, no, you don't. See, now you're really uncomfortable that I critique Brene Brown, aren't you? That's like, like saying something about Taylor Swift. You cannot do that. Just like, the Swifties will come for you, right? It's like, but I'm, I'm here as your pastor to speak truth. Again, I, I like Brene. I learned a lot from her. I think she's on a journey like we all are. I think she's wrong on that quote. And I think it's really, really dangerous. I really do, because she's saying you turn inward to find yourself. Where did this come from? Because you see that's so ubiquitous. That word just means it's everywhere. It's just the waters we swim in. We don't even know that it's wrong because we're literally surrounded by it in the modern Western world. There's a philosopher, Charles Taylor. He's a Canadian. He wrote this huge tome uh, maybe about 15 years ago that has probably been one of the most influential books in the last 100 years for philosophy and even theology. And don't read it. It's really, really long and really boring. But he has some really insightful things that he says about how we've made this shift. He said for most of of humanity's history, including around the world today, people acknowledged there was a God and to find wisdom and truth and belonging and meaning you had to look outside yourself to that God. And that there was ways, there was morality, there was a way of doing things that humans would, would share and agree on. He calls this the sacred structure of the world. And humanity just all agreed, you turn outward and you find that out there and then find yourself. We said in the last hundred years in the modern Western world, it's flipped and and we've jettisoned that sacred structure. So that doesn't exist anymore. And now we turn inward. He calls this the subjective turn. So he said, now we believe that our inner selves are godlike and that the greatest truth is that we as little gods need to be set free. And if anything gets in our way, (laughs) you know, we're going to cancel you. (laughs) Get out of my way because I'm a God. I have to express myself and find myself, right? It sounds good in some ways. It sounds humanism should be good for humans. (laughs) But here's what I'm putting forward today. It's profoundly dehumanizing, profoundly dehumanizing. Well, you're like, well, that's just your opinion. Fair enough. But I think let's let's look at data. Data helps. Facts help. America has bought hook, line, and sinker into this as most of the Western world. I call this the humanistic individualism is what you see around everywhere. Self-centered, I'm God, get out of my way. I can determine what truth is and who I am and what's right and wrong and all that stuff. Um, America, I think, I I love America, but I think we're one of the most self-obsessed nations in the history of the world. And we are profoundly depressed. (laughs) 
This is just the truth. I'm not trying to take shots. I love America. Please hear that. I don't want those emails. Uh, (laughs) Happy Planet Index, which gauges happiness factors around the world based on like asking people from the countries. America uh, is 108th. 108. We're the richest, most successful country in the history of the world, and it's not even close. 108th. One survey revealed that 43% of American undergraduates reported feeling so depressed it was difficult to function. And 64% felt overwhelming anxiety. And for the first time in recorded history, life expectancy in America is going down because largely of drug overdoses and suicide, things tied to how we're doing, we're not doing well. Turning to ourselves to find truth, turning away from God is not helping us. It's dehumanizing. Why? Why is it not working? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who takes the scripture seriously, one reason is sin. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, used to describe sin and the effects of sin of being turned in on yourself. It's kind of a gross idea, just being self-centered and being, this is what sin does. It curls us in on ourselves. We know these people like this. And we're like, like we call them narcissists. Sin turns us in on ourselves. Sin, it deceives us, it deforms us, it ultimately destroys us. Now do you see the fallacy of saying turn inward to find truth? Like that's so dangerous. Another reason is that we're not meant to play God. Uh, uh, Alan Noble, he wrote a book called uh, You Are Not Your Own this past year. It was probably one of my top five books I read this past year. It's really, really phenomenal. And Noble writes that uh, believing that we're on our own, believing we totally belong to ourselves is dehumanizing. It's not how we are created to live. And he has this phrase, he says, uh, when we buy into that, then we buy into this idea of the responsibility of self-belonging. You're on your own. Like, you really want that? (laughs) That's what he's saying. Do you really want that? Here's what he said. The responsibility for, for our own lives means that we're responsible to justify our own existence, to create our own identity, to fabricate our own meaning, to determine our own morality, to choose our own values, and to belong. The problem is all of these things need outside validation. And that's why we're just like, we say we want to be on our own, but we need, we're hungry for people to validate us. This is what I think. You got to tell me I'm right. You got to tell me I'm right. You got to tell me I'm right. It's like a prison cell. It doesn't work and it leads to uh, a crushing sense of, of weariness and insecurity and ultimately t- to nihilism, I think. I think a final reason it, it, it is you know, saying I'm on my own, I'm gonna look internally, be true to yourself is the way to go. Why it doesn't work is because it literally doesn't work. <laughs> Imagine, just like practically, we don't need to get deep into sociology to figure this out. If you say you're your own person and you, you figure out your own values and your own identity, your own morality, what happens if the person sitting next to you today disagrees? Or that other person? There's six billion people out there. <laughs> what if they disagree? Who arbitrates those things? If we have no common story and no common linkage, how do we ever get along? What's our hope? There, I would say there, there, there is no hope. And also, if you're, if you're turned inward, I mean, you go back to that poetry I read earlier, it talks about, you know, loving, but then loving others, and like, you can't be curved in loving yourself and also turn outward and love others. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We got, in this modern cultural mindset of be true to yourself, we, we, we say all the time, you've probably said it, to young kids, 
You can be anything you want. Don't say that. <laughs> Chris Rock, you may know Chris Rock. I, I don't know that I wanna recommend that you watch his specials, but uh, comics say some really brilliant things. And I remember when I was writing this message, I remember this little Chris Rock, Chris Rock bit from a years ago. Here's what he says. He says a, a vice principal came up, he was with a bunch of young kids and said that very thing, you can be anything you want. And here's his reflection on it. He doesn't curse, just it's okay. Um, and I'm sitting there and this lady comes up and goes, I want you children to know you can be anything you want to be. You can absolutely be anything you want. I'm like, lady, why are you lying to these children? Maybe four of them could be anything they want to be. The other 2,000 better learn how to weld. I'm looking at these kids right now. I count at least 60 Uber drivers. Really? They could be anything they want to be? Then how come you're a vice principal? Was that your dream? Did you dress up like a vice principal when you were a kid? Did you put your little vice principal hat on? Tell these kids the truth. You can be anything you're good at as long as they're hiring, and even then it helps to know somebody. <laughs> I mean, right? We say these things that we don't play it out. It doesn't work, and we're not being fair to this generation that's getting crushed. They're getting crushed by this. It's not loving to tell them, be true to yourself when it doesn't work. That's my heart, you can disagree with me. In 1953, the faculty of Heidelberg University in present-day Germany wrote a new catechism. That's, catechisms are like uh, practices and ways of thinking to raise up the next generation to follow Jesus because they, they thought they were getting away from it. They thought the next generation was losing their way. They, they wrote it in, uh, in a question and answer format, which is really interesting. But here's the way it begins. This is how it starts. What is my only comfort in life and death? The answer that I am not my own, but belong in body and soul, both in life and death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. That's the truth. You want life? You want to be true to yourself? You turn to Jesus, who is the life. That's the way of Jesus. That's what Jesus tells us. At the heart of that definition of what it means to be a disciple, how would I encapsulate for you? I would say that, uh, that death to self is the doorway to life that is truly life. If we want to be honest with people when we're inviting them to the way of Jesus, there's so much good, so much good. Of course, I want everyone to follow Jesus, but we ought to include a warning label like they do on cigarettes. <laughs> Following this man can be deadly. Following this man can be deadly. That's where we're being honest. The great Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, the cross stands at the beginning of community with Jesus. Whenever Christ calls us, his calls lead to death. Do you guys remember, some of you are older, remember uh, Monty Python, Do you the, the British co comedy troupe? Uh, he, uh, best known for The Search for the Holy Grail, which is a really funny movie. He had a lesser known movie called Life of Brian, which I think it's, it's really uh, sacrilegious, don't watch it, but it's really funny too. And this guy, Brian, he's born next to the stable in Bethlehem and they confuse him for being the Messiah. So the whole movie is like, he th everybody's telling him he's the Messiah and he's just some dude named Brian. And uh, so it gets all the way up to the crucifixion and they have this scene uh, where there's like a line of criminals and they're coming through and they're checking and, and they're like, are you, are you here for crucifixion? And they're like, yes. And they're like, uh, go through the doorway to the left and one cross a person. And, uh, and this one guy comes up and they're like, are you here for crucifixion? And he's like, no freedom. And he's like, well, that's awesome. He's like, no, just kidding, crucifixion. And they both laugh. And what you might say, why are you laughing at crucifixion? That's the satire, Monty Python's satire. There's nothing funny about it. 
but it leads to life for followers of Jesus. If you don't believe me, just like read the Bible. John 12, 24 says, very truly I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is the doorway to life. That's what we do when we get baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you're a follower of Jesus, you should. I was 12, I was baptized in the Shenandoah River like in October in Virginia. And I would remember like getting dunked under that water and come up spitting and shivering. And when I was dunked, he said, buried with Christ and risen to walk a new life. We step into relationship with Jesus by faith. We are incorporated into his death. We die to self. That's not the end. We get risen up to new life to literally become new creations. Here's how I would sum it up for you today. Because you might be like, this is everywhere. Monty Python and Chris Rock. What are you saying, pastor? (laughs) Here's what I'm saying. Following Jesus is the only pathway for becoming truly ourselves. Yes, you are uniquely and wonderfully made. No one is like you ever in the history of the world. And you are beautiful. Do I want you as your pastor to become yourself? Yes. You're not gonna do it by turning inwardly. You'll go the opposite direction. It's dehumanizing. To find yourself, for me to find myself and to fully become who God created me to be, I have to turn to Jesus. And Jesus has to take that old John, the broken John, the selfish John, the still being reformed, and take John into death and raise John to new life to become uh, who I'm created to be. Because sin distorts image bearers. And Jesus has to take care of that and reform us and remake us. When I was writing the message, I, I thought of a book that, I read, that we read our daughters when they were very young by a guy named Eric Carle. You may know Eric Carl. He's an artist, and he wrote, I don't know, a couple decades ago. I think there's an Eric Carl Museum now. Beautiful, beautiful art. And uh, this book is maybe his famous, called The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Does anybody remember this book? Oh, I love it. My girls up there, you guys remember it? Yeah, yeah, baby. They're like, no, don't, don't point at me. Don't point at me in public. Um, so it's a caterpillar that's hungry and for five days uh, eats more and more food. And it helps kids count like one apple, two pears, three plums, and so on. And then on Saturday, the, the very hungry caterpillar like goes to town. And it's like chocolate cake, ice cream, pickle, cherry pie. So like, and, the, and the very hungry caterpillar gets sick and then eats a leaf and then goes into this cocoon, which if you're a small kid, you're really like, what is that? What's the cocoon? It's ugly, you know? And then of course, after two weeks, the caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly. The gospel's everywhere, isn't it? And this is the gospel. This is how it plays out into our life. Yeah, the moment we look to Jesus, we are made right with God, that is true. But the process of that taking root and shape in your life is a process and a journey that's called following Jesus and we're reshaped and reformed as we follow Jesus. The great artist Michelangelo, uh, when uh, he got done with David, the great sculptor, I was asked like, you know, because apparently as the story goes, it was a piece of rock no artist wanted to deal with. And then Michelangelo, he was a young artist, finally got it and then created one of the greatest sculptures in the history of the world. Do you like how I edited that for uh, church, church use? <laughs> I'm here for you, I feel, I feel you. Um, So he says, he has this great quote that they're like, how did you see that in the rock? He's like, I just removed what wasn't supposed to be there. 
And I like to think that that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in, in my life and in your life. As we follow Jesus, we become truly ourselves. You become your beautiful self. You become the person that experiences what God so desperately wants for you, the life that is truly life. It's really comforting to me that headstrong Peter, who rebuked Jesus, took him aside. Can you imagine that scene? It did, with all of his audacity, like a short time later, denies three times to just random people that even, even knows Jesus. He's a coward, too. I can relate to that. Like, what a broken dude when Jesus finds him at the breakfast on the beach after the resurrection. And that great scene is one of my favorite scenes in Scripture where Jesus puts him back together because <laughs> he knows he's going to be the leader of the church. Puts him back together. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. And then what does Jesus say if you know the passage to him? He says, follow me. Are you ready now, Peter? We got all that self stuff out of the way. We done with all that foolishness? <laughs> and we learn in Acts that he wasn't quite done with all that foolishness. But are you, are you done today? Then you follow me. And then you remember, Peter's like, well, you know, and then Jesus says, well, to follow me, you're gonna one day have your arms stretched out on a cross to die. And then Peter's like, what about John? <laughs> He's like, you, you worry about you, right? And then he says, follow me. What a beautiful passage. Later, Peter writes, uh, as he will be put to death on the cross by Nero. Um, right before that, he writes to the churches in Asia Minor. And he says this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Uh, this word example is such a cool word. I love it. It's a Greek word. Uh, you're like, what is this thing up here? Uh, it's a Greek word. This is literally what it means. So you remember, you know, all the little sheets that we learned to do letters as a kid. And, you, you know, you learn to write them by tracing them, tracing them, tracing them, tracing them. Uh, the word, that's exactly what this Greek word means. Here's how you follow Jesus, Peter says, by following his example. It means tracing a letter. Isn't that cool? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means this. Every single day, right, you and I, we get out of bed by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we say, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus live? How did he respond to people? How did he follow God? How did he pray? How did he worship? How did he love? How was he generous? And we trace his life. That's it. <laughs> And, you know, we're being a little cute here because it's a cross-shaped life, right? Of course it is. Um, you know, years ago, somebody remember the What Would Jesus Do bracelets that kind of got kitschy and weird. As Christians do, we do that with stuff. But the heart of it's beautiful. It comes from a book, In His Steps, by Charles Sheldon. I love it. There's nothing theologically wrong with it, I'm telling you. Like, you want to become yourself? You want to be true to yourself? You get out of bed every day and you trace the life of Jesus. You follow him by God's grace. You're gonna mess up, I'm gonna mess up. You got the Holy Spirit. And you, in that process, become who you were created to be. I don't know what your New Year's resolution was. Maybe you don't do that. If not, I'll give you one. And maybe you got one and you've already failed or it's a bad one, I'll give you a better one. Just follow Jesus. Just follow Jesus. What would happen this year? What would happen? G.K. Chesterton had this famous quote. He said, the way of Jesus has not uh, been, been found, uh, not been tried and found wanting, but found difficult and left untried. What if we tried it, New Hope? What if we tried it? 
What if we believe the man who actually died for us and offers us life, and we believe that he knows the way to true life? What if this year, by the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, we get up every day and we trace his life as best we can? I promise you, as best I can understand in doing so, you will become truly yourself. And you will experience the life that is truly life. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we, uh, we can't do this, but you can. That's the hope of the gospel. We can't do this, but you can. And I don't know much. I feel like the older I get, the less I know. But I know you love us. And I know that turning inward into my broken, sinful heart is not going to lead me to truth. It's not going to lead me to life and to wholeness. It just won't. Turning to you will. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And I pray for my friends, my family here at New Hope, my brothers and sisters in Jesus, that you would give us the faith and the courage and the audacity to try following you, to give it a shot. And I truly believe in doing so, we will discover the life that is truly life. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that your mercies are new every day single morning for great is your faithfulness we love you lord we pray this all in the matchless name of your son jesus amen